Open your Bible to the book of James this morning. You know, it's been said that a college education is the one thing that people are willing to pay for, but they don't really want. Meaning that they pay all these fees and tuition, but they don't even bother to go to class most of the time. They don't show up because they're not really interested in learning. They just kind of want to sort of check the box. Well, you might be able to turn that around and say that spiritual maturity is the one thing that every Christian wants, but they just don't want to pay for They all want to imagine themselves walking, if you will, on the heights with the great Christian leaders and saints of all the ages. They just don't want the hard trek up the mountain to get there. Spiritual maturity, the Bible tells us, doesn't come cheap. It's the result of a combination of increasing in the knowledge of God, of exercising faith, and of enduring trials. The classic passage on that is James chapter 1, verse 2 through 4. It says here, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, this is going to be the passage uh, for our focus this morning as we begin a new study in the book of James. It's a book that is a mystery to a lot of people. It seems to so many who read it like a jumbled up bunch of unrelated various lessons on moral issues. But in fact, James is centered around two themes that he introduces for us in these first couple of verses. The first is the idea of faith. James James uses the word faith 14 times in this short little book uh, throughout these five chapters. And it's a concept that he spends considerable time explaining in the most practical of terms. He talks about the danger of faith in and doubt. He talks about the incongruity of faith with favoritism or the incongruity of faith without works. Or he explains what faith looks like in terms of our tongue and our speech. Or he talks about the power of the prayer of faith whenever you're sick at the end of this book. Over and over again, he's returning to this theme and helping us to understand the true nature of faith. But all of that talk of faith is essentially set in contrast to, if you will, a series or a kind of test or trials or even temptations as you go throughout this book, whether it's the idea that James introduces to us here at the beginning of this letter. He doesn't get into the specific test. He just talks about various tests. But as you read through this letter, You understand some of the kinds of tests that he has in mind. He talks about, a couple of times, hardship for poor people when they're being denied their wages or not paid appropriately according to their tasks. He talks about physical sickness that comes into our life and the kind of burden that brings in our hearts and minds. He talks about conflict. When people falsely accuse you, when they say vile things about you or to you, 
and the use of the tongue in these kinds of destructive ways. He talks about pride and boasting. Even near the end of the book, he talks about spiritual waywardness and returns to this issue of doubting. So it's all kinds of tests, really. Could have been any, any number of tests that he mentions or those that he doesn't mention. But these are the ideas that recur throughout this book. This idea of what is faith? What does it really look like? What is it supposed to look like in my daily life? And how is it being tested? How do I respond to those various tests? The goal in all of this for James is, first of all, to encourage those who are going through tests or through trials. Secondly, to help them understand the nature, the true nature of spiritual maturity, or we might say maturity in faith. And then as a consequence, we might say thirdly, it is to rebuke and to correct those who walk in spiritual pride or who evaluate themselves based on their outward, usually materialistic success. They have a false notion of what faith is and a false notion of what spiritual maturity is. And they don't do well when they face tests. Now, this little letter was written by James, the brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. You may remember Jesus was born to Mary. Before she was married to Joseph, she found herself to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Joseph went on to marry uh, Mary, but they had no children, or they, I should say there were no children born, obviously, until Jesus was born as she was pregnant, entering into the marriage. But after she gave birth to Jesus, Mary and Joseph went on to have other children, half-brothers of Jesus. And they would grow up with him. They watched him in his life in the village, the quiet village on the hills of Nazareth, watched him grow up and learn the trade of his father and live out his life for the first 30 years of his life. But none of them believed in Jesus while he was living on the earth. In fact, John 7, verse 2, we find them mocking Jesus. John says, now the feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers, that is Jesus' brothers, said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works that you're doing. For no one works in secret if he is to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. They were kind of maybe hoping that he would go to Judea and face failure. Maybe be exposed even as a fraud because they didn't believe really in him. Mark 3.21 says that at one point when he was teaching, they even came to seize him because they thought he had lost his mind. James would have been among them. He would have been one of the family members. He would have been one of the brothers who had this opinion of Jesus. But all that changed after the resurrection. As Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians fifteen seven, that after Jesus' resurrection, he appeared to more than 500 people at one time. And then he appeared to James. And then to all the apostles. In other words, he made a special appearance to James as his half-brother, because he had a special task for him. He called him to faith and to himself and to a greater work. He made this appearance 
And apparently James became a believer at that point. That would have been in 33 AD when Jesus was uh, raised from the dead. Then later on, around 44 AD, we see Peter addressing James as one of the main leaders of the church in Acts chapter 12. In Galatians 2, Paul calls him a pillar, along with James, uh, Peter and John. He, he says James was considered to be a pillar of the church in those early days. In fact, in, in Acts 15, when the elders and the apostles gathered for the Jerusalem council, we find that it was James, along with Peter, as one of the chief voices of the board of elders of the Jerusalem church. And all this has led people to the very clear conclusion that James was a leader. He took a leading role, if you will. He was what we might call the main teaching pastor of the Jerusalem church. He was a prominent man in the early church. Peter, who initially provided leadership, you may remember, to the Jerusalem church after the resurrection of Christ and the falling of the Holy Spirit, was imprisoned, but when he was released from prison in 44 AD, we're told that he went to other places outside of Jerusalem, and it was apparently at that point that James began to take a more prominent role in leadership in the church. And it was shortly after that time when he would have written this letter. We don't know a specific date, probably between 45 and, and 49 AD. He wrote this before most of the other New Testament books were written, really before most of the other controversies of the New Testament had even uh, arisen when Paul wrote his letters to address all of these things, when the gospel began to be recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Before all of that stuff, James wrote this letter and he wrote it to particularly Jewish communities who were experiencing the gospel and coming to believe in Christ scattered throughout all of the synagogues of all the Roman empires. In fact, you see that in verse 1. James addresses this letter to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, which was a, a way in the first century of describing Jewish communities, the dispersion of the diaspora, the Jewish communities who were spread throughout all the world, from Babylon all the way over to Rome and everywhere in between, Egypt and all those places. And he wrote this, if you will, as a kind of a circular letter, which means that it wasn't written to a particular church, maybe even with a particular situation in mind, but it was meant to be circulated among all believers. It was written in a very general way. But the intent is clear. He wanted these believers, these brand new believers who were just now coming to faith in Christ, he wanted them to understand the true nature of faith. And he wanted them to understand the necessity of testing and trials for their faith. To help them understand, especially how the lessons of Jesus Christ would apply to them. And as we'll see as we go through this book, there are tremendous links between what James has to say in this book and what Jesus taught in the Gospels, most especially in the Gospel of Matthew. Strong links between this, the Sermon on the Mount, and all the Gospel of Matthew. So with that sort of overview, if you will, of the book, let's look at these opening couple of verses because they present to us incredibly important lessons about these key themes, particularly the value of 
testing or the value of spiritual testing, we might say. And in order to uh, keep it simple, we'll just emphasize not so much the testing, but just the trial, the, the incredible value of trials. They ultimately present to us a pathway to spiritual maturity that we could have no other way of experiencing. And James explains that to us in these opening verses. He gives us three vital principles if we're going to really benefit from the hardships of life, if we're going to benefit from the trials, from the suffering, from the testing. Three principles that you and I have to keep in mind if we're going to understand the value of testing, value of trials. The first is very basic, and it comes to us there in verse 2. Simply this, rejoice at the opportunity for growth through the trial. Rejoice at the opportunity for growth through the, the trial, the testing. James simply says, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. Now, there are several key phrases you could take note of just in that little verse. First of all, the command is to count or to consider or to reckon. He's not saying that you are going to enjoy the trial. That's not what he's saying at all. But he's saying that you are to make a calculation, a mental judgment, very intentional weighing out of things, a value judgment, if you will, a kind of a kind of accounting that's what the word is really saying it's a it's a a word for reckoning you're to weigh out as you face these difficult situations as you go through these hard conversations as you grapple with difficult relationships or whatever it might be you're to weigh out what you are losing versus what you're gaining You're to weigh out what you are giving up versus what you are receiving. And if in your mind you are properly valuing things, if you're properly evaluating things, then your mind will eventually be filled with a sense of peace and contentment and even joy when you encounter trials. Now, let me show you just an example of this really quickly in Scripture, and then we'll come back and explain it a little bit more. But look with me over at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, when Paul articulates the same kind of principle in his own life. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul begins that chapter by talking about Really, the kind of false accusations and, 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 and uh, false conclusions that were people were coming to about his own ministry, claiming that he was disgracefully underhanded and practicing uh, cunning and, and uh, deceit in all these ways. And Paul comes down in verse 7 and says this, But we have this treasure in jars of clay. To show their surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. 
persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. This is what the Apostle Paul is saying when he's dealing with his own personal trial, which were these attacks against him and these accusations against him. This is what he's saying. You can afflict me. You can attempt to crush me. You can try to drive me to despair. You can strike me down. You can persecute me. But you cannot destroy me. In fact, what is Paul's response to all this? Treasure. He says it's a treasure. I'm actually enriched because of this. You would think that you are delivering Paul over to death, but he would say you're actually delivering him to life. You would think that you're working death in him, but he would say you're actually working out life within him. Because Paul understood that when there is less of Paul, there's more of Jesus. He says it here, always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in us. Later on when Paul returns to this theme in 2 Corinthians 12, he actually says, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ might rest upon me. Oh, you want to talk about my weaknesses? You want to talk about my deficiencies? You want to talk about my falterings and my failings? You want to talk about all those things? Well, that's fine. It just brings more glory to Christ. He says, for the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weaknesses, with insults, with hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then... I am strong. When I'm weak, I'm strong. When I die, I live. When I lose, I win. Folks, you can't defeat someone like that. You cannot defeat someone like that. When they lose, they win. When they die, they live. When they're weak, they're strong. You can't defeat them. This is what James is saying. You have to align your values with the values of God. And when they're aligned with the values of God, then you always are a victor in Christ. In fact, there in 2 Corinthians 4, this is what he says later on. So then we do not lose heart. But though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison 
While we look not at the things that are seen, but the things which are not seen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are not seen are eternal. Paul says, look, this is a weight. You have to understand there's a weight of glory that's coming my way. And so while I'm suffering this affliction, I compare it. I weigh it out. And in my judgment, my value system, it is light, it is momentary, it is passing. And in my value system, what I'm receiving from this affliction is weighty and heavy and lasting and eternal. James is telling us the same thing. You must see spiritual growth, spiritual wisdom, a mind set on heaven as your most prized possession. You have to see conformity to Christ as your most prized possession. And when you do that, when everything in your life is oriented that way, when you are set on the things of heaven, well, that means that whatever trials come into your life are what Paul calls them, treasure. They're treasure. You can imagine someone thinking that gold is toxic to you. That somehow it's going to be lethal. In their minds, it's going to kill you. But they don't understand. It's just going to make you rich. That it is a treasure to you. So they just begin to hurl gold your way. They throw gold coins and jewelry. They pour it all over you. They try to threaten you with gold everywhere you turn. And all you can do is just chuckle and smile because they're actually, while they think they're destroying you, they're actually making you more and more and more wealthy. This is Paul's value system. This is James's value system. You couldn't help but rejoice when you align your values the right way. This is the key to what James is saying. You have to reorient the way you think of trials. Previously, you thought about them only in the sense of what you lose. Previously, you thought about them only in terms of the humiliation of them. Previously, all you could think about was the injustice of them. Previously, all you could think about was the pain, the loss. That's all you could focus on. And so, when that happens, your mind and your heart is filled with grief and is filled with anger and is filled with bitterness and is filled with self-pity. And every trial just, just cast you down into that sort of pit. But James says you have to reorient the way that you're thinking and begin to assess it, begin to count it, begin to reckon it as joy. Count it, not just joy, but all joy. Or we might translate that as only joy. Unmixed with anything else. Not mixed in, not a little bit of joy mixed in with a lot of grief. Not a little bit of joy mixed in with a lot of bitterness. But all joy, complete joy, when you fall into these tests and these trials. 
James says you do this when you meet various trials, when you encounter them, or as the King James says, you fall into them. These aren't, these aren't expected. They, they sort of uh, pop on you. It might be very sudden, maybe a car crash. It might be a, a quickly deteriorating relationship. You might show up to work and be given a pink slip and escorted out of the office. Who knows? You might go to the doctor and get a, a diagnosis. They just happen upon you. They're unexpected. They're undesired events. But they come your way again and again and again. Man is born to trouble as sparks fly upward, says Job. James calls them, as we said, various trials. These aren't just people who are suffering for their faith. There aren't just what you might categorize as a few noble trials, spiritual in that sense, But he's talking to people who are experiencing all kinds of trials. One of his main concerns in this book is very simply people who are not being paid. Or they're not being paid adequately or enough. In other words, they just have financial trials. They're dealing with poverty or they're dealing with, as he says later on in the book, with sickness. He's talking to people who lose their health or lose their jobs or lose their loved ones or they lose their home or they miss out on some opportunity or some experience or they miss out on some promotion or they don't have the raise they were hoping. They don't be able, they're not able to fulfill the expectations that they had. They They see broken relationships with family and broken relationships at work and the broken relationships with neighbors. Their circumstances overwhelm them. People abandon them. Promises are broken. Bones are broken. Organs fail. Eyesight fades. Doesn't matter. They're various trials. Any kind of trial. They all happen to us. But when they do, James says... You align your values, not with the values of this world, or as Paul says, not with that which is seen, but that which is unseen, the values of heaven. And you calculate, you reckon, you consider all of it joy, because you know it's an opportunity to have less of you and more of Christ. Less of you and more of Christ. Secondly, James drills down a little bit deeper. And he tells us not only to rejoice at the opportunity for growth that trials bring, but remember the necessity of endurance in trials. Remember the necessity of endurance. He explains why you rejoice in verse 3 because you know that testing the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. It produces endurance. It develops, we might say, a kind of capacity, an ability that is built up within you. The capacity to continue to bear up under difficult circumstances. It's like a muscle, if you will. You all have basic structural frameworks in your anatomy, but most people are underdeveloped 
in this. They are atrophied. They are soft. They are flimsy. They have weak muscles and weak endurance. They have weak, we might say in the spiritual realm, they have weak resolve when it comes to bearing up under difficult circumstances. And James is telling us that your spiritual state, your mental, emotional state along with it is like a muscle that has never been put under any strain. It's never had to do heavy lifting or push or pull against any kind of difficulty and so it's weak. In the case of a runner, your lungs have never had to strain for oxygen. You've never had to deal with rapid heartbeats or high altitudes or vigorous activity or running up hills or whatever it might be. So you essentially have limited stamina, limited endurance. And James is saying that if every Christian never experienced these difficulties, they would never have opportunity to grow in endurance. He's telling us what every athlete, what every bodybuilder already knows. Endurance is built up by resistance. Endurance is built up by trial. It's built up by pushing and pulling and fighting against something. You face hard circumstances, longer runs, heavier weights, more difficult weather conditions or whatever it might be, and in time you build up your endurance. So even in the spiritual realm, you have to realize that you will never develop the kind of spiritual endurance that you need if you never face trials. You'll never develop spiritual strength. You'll never develop spiritual depth. You'll never develop spiritual character unless you face stiffer and stiffer challenges. This flies in the face of the prevailing assumption today in Christianity that your Christianity should be easy. That you should be able to dedicate an hour a week to it and be just fine. And that you ought to, in fact, you're entitled to all the enjoyment of all the physical luxuries of the world because you're God's child. You ought to be able to get that. So you ought to just be able to kick back and coast and enjoy. This is the prevailing idea in society today. And so when tests come along, when difficulties come along, so many Christians are absolutely perplexed. In fact, it's very common today for people to speak about being angry with God when they face a trial, as if that's okay, as if that's acceptable. And people would tell you, I'm sorry, just vent, just vent, it's just okay, just be angry with God. He understands. Nothing could be more unbiblical or damaging to your soul. To think wrongly, so wrongly about God and about your trials vacates their benefit and dishonors the Lord. In fact, James would tell us later on, only good and perfect gifts come from God. So even if he's sending you a trial, it is because he has good and perfect gifts in store for you. We recognize this in athletic and physical realm, but in the spiritual realm, people are shocked 
I mean, they can hardly deal with a long line in the supermarket, much less a stiff trial of life. I mean, they have to, if they have to wait at the sink while someone else washes their dish, that inconvenience throws them for a loop. We are so, so unprepared, so untested, so lax or weak when it comes to endurance. Extraordinarily few people take time to consider how deeply in need they are of spiritual endurance. You might take stock physically. You might look in the mirror and see the sad reality every day as so many of us do and think, you know, I need to start running more. I got to start lifting weights. I got to do something about this. But very few people look at themselves spiritually and think, you know, I I need something. I need a test. I need a resistance. I need a trial. And so when it comes your way, you welcome it. You say, this is exactly what I need. We have to forgive this kind of spiritual assessment to ourselves and understand that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. It produces endurance. There's no other way to get it. No other way to get it. And so you and I need to recognize the necessity of these tests. Our hearts need to be tested. Our minds need to be tested. Our beliefs need to be tested. Our emotions need to be tested. Our aspirations, our goals, our affections, our loves, our treasures, all of those things need to be tested. Basically, our faith, our faith, if it's never tested, James is telling us it'll have little strength, little capacity. Now, we don't seek out those tests. We don't manufacture those tests. We are not eager to see God or His truth challenged. We're not sitting around hoping for that to happen necessarily. We fall into these tests. We meet them unexpectedly. They are tests that are designed for us by God. We are just simply to assess them rightly when they come our way. You remember Joseph? When Joseph was sold into slavery, basically his entire family turned against him, threw him into a pit, uh, wanted to uh, kill him, and then decided mercifully just to sell him into slavery for the rest of his life. Never to see him again, they thought. The Lord takes him down to Egypt, and through several other tests, eventually he is lifted up to a position of power as the prime minister within Egypt until one day his brothers show up at the foot of his throne because there's a famine and they would die if he doesn't give them food. As they discover his true identity, they begin to fear for their life that he was going to respond the way everyone else would have responded to that kind of a test. Vengeance, anger, bitterness. But what does he do? He tells them in Genesis 50, 20, you intended this for evil, but God intended it for good. This is the attitude that James is talking about. This is the way we 
This is the way we begin to view these tests. We understand the necessity of them to build up our spiritual character and our endurance. So while we don't seek them out, while, we'll, while we don't design trials for ourselves, they happen to us. We fall into them. And we need to recognize God's powerful hand behind them and recognize that we will grow through them if we approach them in the right way. Which leads to the third principle here. Not only do we need to rejoice at the opportunity that these trials bring, not only do we need to remember the necessity of them for building spiritual endurance, but also in verse 4, we need to remain patient while dealing with deficiencies in trials or by trials. James says it this way in James 1.4, let steadfastness or endurance Let it have its full effect that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. He just piles on the terminology here talking about our completeness or our perfection. The word teleos is the word here. It's translated, even in the book of James, translated maturity. And that's in in other places. And that's probably the way it should be translated here. Let this... Let this endurance have its full effect so that you would be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. He's speaking about the spiritual completeness, the spiritual uh, wholeness, if you will, not necessarily sinlessness. He's not suggesting that you'll ever reach the point where you're sinless, but you can be made complete. Or we might even say it this way. You can deal with the deficiencies that remain in your character. The imbalances that are still there. Where you might excel in certain areas. You might excel in areas of service or areas of generosity. But you're still deficient in areas of trust and areas of the, of the tongue. You might excel in, in areas of kindness and, and grace. But you still struggle with with uh, being generous or, or being trusting of God or being evangelistic or whatever it might be. You are incomplete. Well, here James is saying that these trials can work themselves out so that you are complete, lacking in nothing. No remaining areas of spiritual weakness. No unfinished part of your character. And the emphasis is on the spiritual life that includes all the necessary elements to accomplish every good work. Very similar to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3 when he describes the result of Scripture in someone's life. He says, once they have been taught and rebuked and corrected and trained by the Scripture, you will be complete equipped for every good work. That helps us to understand a little bit of what James is saying here. During trials, during testing, God is using His Word to reveal to you all of those areas of deficiency. He's helping you to understand where your life doesn't yet line up with the Word of God and how you can grow through it. Of course, the real danger in all of this is that as you get into the trial, that you simply stop enduring. 
That, that's, the, that's the essence of the command here. Do not neglect letting this steadfastness have its full effect. You must let it happen. Not that you could ever stop the trials, but you could stop responding to them in the right way. You could stop responding to them in a godly way, and you could start responding to them in a sinful way. D. Edmund Hebert says, Maturity of character is not the result of the number of trials encountered, but the way in which the trials are met. End quote. You're not just mature because you've suffered a lot. I've seen people who have suffered enormously many times because of foolish choices they make and they just heap trouble upon trouble in their own life and think that somehow, some way, that makes them more virtuous. It doesn't. If you continue to respond with the same foolishness, if you continue to respond with the same immaturity over and over again, you're not benefiting at all. All you're doing is suffering. But James says, you have to let this work itself out. Let this endurance have its completing, its perfect, its rich work in your life and in your heart. You have to allow the trials and allow the testing, allow the hurts and the offenses to create in you the work that God wants them to create. You can't let it create a kind of hardness of heart. You can't let it create a kind of bitterness within you. You can't let it create a kind of cynical attitude about Christianity, about God, about the church. Instead, you have to allow it to have its full effect, making you more merciful to others who are going through similar kinds of trials, more generous, more patient, more prayerful, more humble, more disciplined and self-controlled, more willing to share your faith with the lost, more eager to show the love of Christ to everyone around you. These are the good and the perfect gifts which come down from above, from the Father of lights, James says in verse 17. They're the things that He wants to do within you and to deal with these areas of deficiency in your character. And the key is that you have to let it happen. You have to stay in the trial. You have to to let this steadfastness have its full effect. You can't give up early. You can't bolt for the door too early. You can't find some fleshly indulgence to throw yourself into. You can't, can't sort of soothe yourself with the dainty morsels of gossip. You can't soothe yourself with the indulgences of the flesh. You can't go shop your way through covetousness and greed and all of those materialistic ways. You can't shop your way out of it. Deaden your mind with the, with the trivialities of the world. It seems we're surrounded in a culture that's never been more easy to do this. Never been more easy to more quickly indulge your flesh because of access that we have to transportation and access that we have to, to uh, 
wealth and to media and to all of those things, because of all these things, we are more enticed, it seems, than ever to not endure, to go and to try to find something that would drown our sadness and not to let the steadfastness of bearing up under that have its full effect, not turn to prayer, not turn to counsel, not turn to the Word of God. But James says this is exactly what we have to do. We have to let steadfastness have its full effect. It's an interesting phrase, an imperative to do something, but what you're doing is letting something be done to you. You can't control how long it takes. You can't speed up the process. In fact, that's the temptation. You want it to all be over by the end of the weekend, by the end of the week, by the end of the month, by the end of the year. You want it all to be over. But you really can't control that. All you can control is how you respond to it. Do you continually count it joyous? Do you continually smile into it? Do you continually value what it's doing in your character? Do you continually cherish the way it's stripping away you so that there would be more of Christ through you? This is hard when you've lost your job and you don't know how you're going to pay the rent or the mortgage next month when you've lost your health and you don't know if you'll be there to care for your loved ones in a few months or years when you come under attack and someone is maligning your character everything in you wants to grow bitter and it wants to strike back and it wants to tear down and it wants to to attack it wants to grow cynical But instead, you should count it joy and let it have its full effect so that people begin to see that even in those areas of deficiency in your life, you're more humble, you're more patient, you're more sympathetic, you're more kind, you're more evangelistic. You know, the challenge begins with the outward pain That's where the trial always seems to begin. But as you endure under it, as you begin to bear up under the pain, there's a deeper pain. And that is all of the ugliness that starts to come out of your heart, your mind, and your lips. That's when you really begin to grapple. That you're not who you thought you were. You're not as strong as you thought you were. You're not as spiritual as you thought you were. You bear up under the the trial, and then there's that deeper trial when all these things begin to be exposed and your patience is tried. And James is saying you have to even then You have to continue. You have to be able to say with Paul, I'm well content with insults, 
with weaknesses, with any kind of challenge. Because when I'm weak, I'm strong. You know, most people think that joy comes when you escape the trial, when you avoid the trial. It's not the perspective of James. There's certainly joy at all times, times of rest and times of refreshing. But even during times of testing, you're to count it all joy, unmixed joy. Because when you lose, you can win because of our gracious Heavenly Father. Let's stand together and be dismissed with a word of prayer and a song. Some of you are here today and you are in trial. But you don't know God. All you think about is the self-pity and the bitterness and everything that's been stripped away from you. But Jesus taught this important lesson and you need to hear it right now. He says, if anyone would gain their life, they have to first lose it. You know, that's the gospel in a nutshell. If you've never reached that point where you understood that, then the call to you today is that you would repent of your life apart from God and that you would come to Him and He'll give you life everlasting. But before you can do that, He says, the key is you have to first lose your life. Then you'll find it in Him. Father, we're so grateful for this, so grateful for the reminders. We confess that in the midst of testing and trial, our hearts are filled with all kinds of emotions, grief and hurt, shame and bitterness, fear and doubt. We confess all those things to you now, Lord. Because we don't always have the joy that we're supposed to have. But I pray that you'd help us by your word this morning to count it all joy. Unmixed joy. So that whatever we experience in this life, we can say with the Apostle Paul, we have a treasure in earthen vessels. While the light momentary affliction works itself out in us, we'll rejoice in the eternal weight of glory that you will bring. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.